0: You can turn with me your Bibles to the prophet Jonah, chapter 4, as we come to the end of this short book on the prophet Jonah. We'll look at Nahum next. Both are connected to the city of Nineveh. And tonight we're going to look at plants or people. So Jonah chapter 4, we'll begin reading at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till they might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But as morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm, and it, is, it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, you've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And shall I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock, amen. Let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful that you are the God over all the world, and shall you not do right in your world? Shall you not show forth your justice to those whom you will show forth your justice? But also shall you not show mercy to those whom you will have mercy upon? And thank you that you have had mercy upon many of us here. Thank you for your amazing grace to save sinners like us. And we ask that you would forgive us for our anger, forgive us for our pettiness, forgive us for our trivialness, forgive us for not realizing and recognizing that you are the God who is all loving, the God who is love itself, the God who is merciful and gracious for that is who you are. Please forgive us for uh, being angry when other people receive good things from you, spiritual or temporal, but thank you that you're the God who even forgives us for those petty thoughts that we do have. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. You're the one who has the right to be angry with sin, yet you are so very gracious to forgive sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask that tonight that you give us illumination by your spirit, enlighten our hearts. May that day, dawn, and morning star rise in our hearts uh, to understand further what your word has to say. And may we appreciate your loving kindness and your amazing grace all the more toward undeserving wretches like us. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, whether we like to admit it or not, we can all struggle with pettiness and anger over God's goodness. We see people receive things that we want, and rather than rejoice with them, we sulk and get angry that they have good things, and we supposedly do not. This can even happen with spiritual things. I remember at seminary, me, myself, and others as well, sulking over the men we understood to be better preachers. And rather than praise God that they were better preachers, we sulked rather than gave God the glory for what he was doing through them. Or even sulking over churches, sulking over what they're doing, sulking over other things, rather than recognizing the goodness God has shown and God done for others, and also recognize the goodness that God has done for us as well, we can sulk and get angry over those good things. And certainly this is the case with Jonah. The Ninevites have repented. The Ninevites have asked God for mercy. God has given it. And Jonah is angry. We all like to think we are the ones who are concerned about the well-being of others. We all like to think that we're more merciful than God. But Jonah 4 says otherwise. If we're anybody in this book, we are Jonah. We're the ones who disobey the Lord God Most High. We're the ones who get petty and angry over the good things that God does. God is the God who is sovereign. God is the God who is just. And God is the God who is merciful. That is the point of the entire book. He has the right over this world, over Israel and the nations, whether to demonstrate his justice or to show undeserved mercy then he shows that undeserved mercy towards the ninevites and it shouldn't be lost on us that jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of israel during the eighth century probably around the same time or a little bit before amos and hosea if you remember anything about israel's history the northern kingdom was not a good kingdom There was no king who did right in the sight of the Lord. Every king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There was disobedience. There was wickedness. And so Jonah received this unique call, go to your enemies. Not not just prophesy from Israel, but actually go to your enemies and call them to repentance. And the main purpose and structure of the book is all about God's sovereignty over the nations and God's mercy towards the nations. God's glory is not just for Israel. And there's really two main parts, Jonah's resistance, Nineveh's repentance, and they parallel with one another. There's a lot of repetition, a lot of parallelism going on in this book to draw our attention to what God is doing through that petty prophet, Uh, Jonah and what he's doing to show mercy towards the Ninevites. And the problem, I think, uh, in these verses is that we can have unrighteous and petty anger. The unrighteous and petty anger of the people of God towards friends and family, but also towards our enemies as well. And it was evident with Jonah. What would have been a great day of rejoicing for any missionary uh, became a great time of sulking for the prophet of Jonah as he preached, He said 40 days and it's going to be overtaken. The people repent and rather than rejoice, he has to groan and become displeased and be angry with the Lord God most high. And so in Jonah four, we see that Jonah is angry with the mercy of God. But as we see his anger with the mercy of God, what it does is it magnifies the mercy of God all the more because God is very merciful to Jonah as well. He's been merciful to him already uh, with the fish Uh, but he, uh, with, uh, I guess, vomiting out of that fish, but he's going to be merciful to him again here uh, as he gently rebukes him concerning his uh, petty ways. So we'll look at this anger of the prophet under two headings this evening. First of all, see when the prophet is angry, verses one through four. Then secondly, we'll see when the Lord is kind, verses five through 11. So when the prophet is angry and when the Lord is kind, Let's first look at when the prophet is angry, verses 1 through 4. And notice we see the anger of the prophet at the mercy of God. Now, remember the context. Certainly, God gave Jonah a command, go to the Ninevites in chapter 1. Jonah goes the opposite direction. God sends a storm. God inadvertently, or I guess, Jonah, uh, through Jonah's uh, disobedience, God saves the mariners. They, Jonah is cast into the sea. He's swallowed by a fish. And that fish was not his salvation, but he speaks of it as death. And he cries out to the Lord God most high, and he's delivered. He's vomited out of that fish. He is saved. And then we see God gives him the command again in chapter three, go to Nineveh, that great city and preach what I will tell you. So he obeys, he goes, he preaches. And the Ninevites believe everyone from the least to the greatest, uh, believes they believe what Jonah had said, that God would overthrow that city, and they cry out to God for mercy. Who can tell, verse 9, if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And then verse 10, then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So it teaches as well that God, for Israel, that Yahweh is not just the uh, the God of Israel, but he is the God overall. God showed his mercy to these Ninevites. He showed his mercy to the Gentiles. He showed his mercy to these pagans. Now we should say in Israel's history, well, this generation certainly repents. They, uh, this uh, Nineveh would eventually be judged by Babylon, uh, which is promised in the prophet Nahum. That's the book we'll look at. Next, but for now, this generation repents. God relents from his disaster. God is merciful to them. And Jonah is not happy about it. Verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Now, the word displeased there is the uh, word evil. It's the same word throughout. It can have different cognates or different uh, glosses, different meanings, Uh, but it shouldn't be lost upon us when the word is repeated. And that word evil is repeated a lot. Nineveh turned from their evil, and God ceased from his evil that he would bring. And now Jonah is displeased. He has evil. He's angry. He's upset. And we're going to see his evil in verse 6 as well. But God was merciful to turn away or to to save the ones who turned from their evil. But Jonah is angry about what they have done. When things don't go his way, he either disobeys or he sulks and gets into a tizzy. And notice we see why. So he becomes angry. Verse 2, he prays. In chapter 2, he prayed as well. It was a little bit of a better prayer then than this one is. But he still prays. He still comes to God Most High and he gives a complaint. And he says, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. We now get the reason why he didn't obey the first time. It's because God is a God of mercy. He understood that. He understood Exodus 34. He understood he's wrestling with the justice and the mercy of God. And he says, I know that you are gracious and merciful, a merciful God. Slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. What's terrible is that Jonah sought mercy in the belly of the fish and found it. Yet Jonah here gripes at the mercy of God when it's given to his enemies. And what makes him upset is God's character. Jonah really is not a great role model, is he? I mean, when you read the book, Jonah isn't really the prophet of the year. When you see what he does and what he says and how he functions, I guess he finally obeys, but he is not the greatest. Gil says, the strangest, oddest, and most out-of-the-way man. For a good man and a prophet, as one shall ever hear or read of. Displeased he was at that which one would have thought he would have exceedingly rejoiced at. The success of his ministry, as all good men, prophets, and ministers of the word do. Nothing grieves them more than the hardness of men's hearts and the failure of their labors. And nothing more rejoices them than the conversion of sinners by them. But Jonah is displeased at the repentance of Ninevites through his preaching and at the mercy God showed unto them. I know who you are, O Lord, and you are a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Now, again, this alludes back to Exodus 34. And in Exodus 34, this is during the golden calf incident. Moses goes up to the mountain of the Lord onto Sinai to speak to God most high. Uh, And then as he's gone for a while, they're like, wait, where did Moses go? Let's all worship a calf instead. And so that's what they do. In a lot of ways, it's the wedding night, so to speak, for Yahweh, the husband, and Israel, the bride. And they commit adultery on their wedding night, on the wedding night. So they engage in this golden cow. They worship this golden calf. Uh, God says, I'm going to destroy them. Look what they have done. Moses intercedes for them. He pleads for them. And then we have this theophany in uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Now, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Yahweh was gracious to them here based upon the intercession of Moses. He begged on behalf of them as the mediator to have God's uh, uh, wrath, uh, relent, and that God would turn from that, which Yahweh does. And that is an interesting contrast with Jonah, isn't it? Moses begs for mercy. Jonah begs for justice and wrath. And what's interesting is in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God is love, but God is just. And both of them are found there. Both of those attributes are seen in verse 6 and 7, all about the goodness and graciousness of God, but also by no means clearing the... Guilty. So Exodus thirty four does include the justice aspect. Jonah emphasizes the gracious aspect. Now that justice aspect is going to come back again in Nahum chapter one that God is the God of justice. But Jonah is mad at the graciousness of God here in uh, in Jonah chapter four. And what's interesting too is in Exodus thirty four fourteen we see that God relents. God relents from what he would do. He is gracious to Israel. Now he's being gracious to Nineveh and Jonah cannot stand that very thing. So what does he do? He does what any spoiled child would do. He threatens to die. Lord, it's either me or them. Kill me or kill them. You decide. And so that's what he says. It's an ultimatum of sorts from that prophet. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, this is also in contrast with another prophet, Elijah in 1 Kings 19, after he's destroyed the prophets of Baal, after Yahweh has shown that there is one God in Israel. Remember, he's doing battle in Israel. Israel and their wickedness, this is during the time of Ahab and Jezebel, terrible king, terrible queen, terrible idolatry going on in Israel at that time. And their despairs are different. Jezebel threatens to kill him. I'm going to find you and I'm going to kill you. And Elijah has to flee and he's in despair over that. And he says, Lord, take my life as well. And so we see there that Elijah is concerned over uh, his life, but also concerned over the impenitence of Israel. He's like, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one here. Is there any righteous person in Israel? He's concerned that Israel, after that big battle, after the miracle of God destroying the prophets of Baal and showing that he was God, they still didn't repent. And he thinks he's the only one. And that's when God affirms him there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But he's concerned over the hardness of heart of his people. Jonah's the opposite. He's mad over the softness of heart that comes from the Ninevites here. So contrasting Moses and Jonah and Elijah and Jonah as well. And we cannot miss the fact that Israel was a wicked nation, a wicked kingdom. In a lot of ways, we're going to see and have seen Jonah's double standard. He's okay with Israel for the most part. I mean, we don't see that, but his anger towards Ninevites, the Ninevites really comes uh, as a bit of a, a double standard because Israel was doing wickedness and not repenting, not relenting, but here comes this nation that would do so. So he gives his ultimatum, Lord, kill me. It's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord gives him a gentle rebuke in verse 4. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? And obviously the answer to that question is no. It is not right for him. There's only one who has the right to be angry in this world. There's only one who has the right to be merciful in this world. Notice he says the Lord Don't miss the fact as well that throughout the book, uh, the name of the Lord changes depending on who's being talked about and uh, and also referring to the work of God, the Lord, as he's speaking to Jonah. And then we'll see how God said in verse 9, the God overall, but it's the covenant name of the Lord, the Lord who's speaking to him, who's entered into that relationship with Israel. And Jonah is that prophet of Israel. Is it right? for you to be angry. Who has the rights to be angry? I think one application we can take away is the problem of unrighteous anger. There is the reality of righteous anger that is legit sometimes when it stems from a holy zeal for God's name, but most of the time our anger isn't ever this, is it? Most of the time it's pettiness. Most of the time, it's frustration. Most of the time, we put ourselves in the stead of God as the judge. That's what anger is. When we get angry at things, whether just or unjust, we put ourselves in the judgment seat, which is resolved or uh, reserved for God. That's why he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And it is, we can sort of understand when people get angry at anger-inducing things and frustrations, we sort of get that, and we do get that because we live in a fallen world, still doesn't necessarily make it right. What's worse is when we get anger over the good things God does. This is why coveting is so very heinous, isn't it? So why envy is so very awful, isn't it? Because we get angry at the goodness of God towards others, and we fail to see the goodness of God towards us. We fail to recognize that God has placed us in specific situations and specific purposes for our good, and he might be withholding something from us for our good. Sometimes we ask God for us for certain things and he might be withholding that very thing to protect us and keep us because that thing might very much ruin us. So we ought not to covet. It is so very heinous. It's idolatry. That's why the first and the 10th commandment are all about idolatry. The the 10 commandments start and end with idolatry. We ought not to be unrighteously angry and also unrighteously angry when God does good towards, uh, for other people, the righteous anger belongs to Yahweh. He is the judge overall. And shall he not do right? Whether it's relenting from disaster in Nineveh, whether it's relenting from disaster to Israel, or whether it's righteous judgment towards Nineveh or righteous judgment towards Israel. And one thing should not be lost on us as well that it would be this Nineveh who God would use to dispossess the northern kingdom in 722 AD. They relent. They are saved this generation, but a subsequent generation would be used by God to judge Israel for whom Jonah was a prophet. So that's when the Lord is angry. Let's then look secondly at when the Lord is kind Verses five through 11. And we see a bit of an object lesson here with Jonah's plant, but his sulking continues, his anger continues, and he's going to be angry at a plant. So Jonah went out of the city, verse five, and he sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade. till he might see what would become of the city. Jonah wants to see what would happen after 40 days. And so he goes, he prepares a booth and he sits there and he wants to see what shall happen. And so he waits outside that city. Well, God is going to prepare a lesson for him and God is going to show how petty Jonah is being. And so verse six and the Lord God prepared. Don't miss that word prepared as well. That's also used throughout the, in the book in 117 where it says the Lord God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Well that word prepared is used here again in verse 6, uh in verse 7 and verse 8. God prepares the land or the plant, he prepares the worm and he prepares the wind. God is over all these things. God has appointed these things. God is the God, not just of Israel, but the God over all things. He is the Lord God who is in control. And so he prepares this plant for Jonah and he made it come up over Jonah. Then it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery or evil, Jonah is bothered by the sun. Uh, Perhaps his booth was deteriorating. It wasn't made of concrete or had metal studs or studs or, you know, insulation, all that sort of stuff. It was made out of, made out of perhaps, you know, things that deteriorate quickly. And so perhaps the sun and that, you know, that part of the world is beating down upon him. So God makes him a plant that acts as his shade. He takes away Jonah's evil. And notice, Jonah's happy about it. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. What's interesting is the way the words line up, it's very similar to verse one, when it says, but it pleased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. And here, Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Don't miss what makes him angry and don't miss what makes him happy. He's teaching us the triviality of something here. He's teaching us that sometimes uh, we ought to look at our situation and realize that we might be griping over something that is really nothing, not to belittle the struggles that people legitimately go through, but sometimes we do have to play the, it could be worse games sometimes. <laughs> and he's highlighting here just how trivial Jonah is being with this plant. And so he continues, but verse seven, but morning came dawn the next day and God prepared a worm. So God, the God overall, he prepares a worm. He is the one who guides the worms to their place. And so it damaged the plant that it withered. So it happens the next, it's just a plant. It happens the next day. It is a worm and it withers. And then verse eight, and it happened when the sun arose that God prepared. God prepared the plant. He prepared a worm and he prepared the wind. And though it's a vehement east wind, And the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. People can die of heat stroke. This is in 2 Kings 4, 18 through 20. And he feels like he's going to die. And we see him sulk again. Then he wished for death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. All over a plant. All over a plant that withered away. He wants to die over a silly, small, little thing that he only knew about the day before. That's how trivial Jonah is being. Is God not the God of life and death? What right do we really have in this world? God is sovereign over all things, and he is teaching Jonah that with this plant, and he's teaching us that with this plant. And so Jonah says he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Lord, kill me because I'm mad at you about Nineveh. Lord, kill me because you killed my plant. I mean, that's how terrible Jonah is being. I mean, it is funny. I mean, the whole point of it, it's supposed to make us laugh and giggle. But as we read things in the Bible that are supposed to be funny, they're also very deadly serious, aren't they? And it is very deadly serious about how trivial God's people can be. Ninevites were saved, but my plant... And so what happens? God says to Jonah, verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, yes. He said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. Jonah is acting as a spoiled little child, as a spoiled little brat. And what about Nineveh? Verse 4, is it right for you to be angry about Nineveh? Doesn't say anything there. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it is right, O Lord, that you killed my precious hydrangea or whatever it was. You killed that and took it away. Thank you. It is my right. And God is so very gracious with us, isn't he? When we're being petty and angry and trivial. Notice what he says in verses 10 and 11. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. It shows Jonah's double standard. The plant was trivial in comparison to Nineveh. And brethren, God postpones Nineveh's judgment. Yes, their judgment would come and Nineveh would never rise again. But just as God postponed Nineveh's judgment, Would he not postpone Israel's if they had repented? Again, we have to not miss the fact that who Jonah was writing for, not where he went to, but who Jonah was writing for, would have been the northern kingdom, would have been the people of Israel. And if God is gracious to the Ninevites and he postpones their judgment, shall he not be gracious to Israel should they repent? And God goes on to say, and speak about the Ninevites. I mean, he does say in verse 10 that you didn't make it. It came up in a night. I did all of this for you. And God is really highlighting here implicitly that he is the one who labored and made this world in the space of six days and everything belongs to him. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Proverbs chapter 16. All things are for God and for his glory whether it's the reprobate to manifest his justice or whether it's the elect to manifest his mercy, mercy. all of it is for God most high. We have very little right over that. This is where we think we're more merciful than God, not we, but yeah, maybe we, maybe us, maybe you were in that boat before. How could God send all those people to hell? How could God do such a thing like that? Is he not the God overall and shall he not do right Shall he not in his justice, righteous judge, justice, righteously punish sin? He must righteously punish sin, but he also is pleased to be merciful towards sinners. And the beauty is in the gospel of Christ, we see God's justice and mercy come together. In the cross of Christ, Christ stands in the stead of his people and the wrath of God, the justice of God is poured out upon Christ in the stead of sinners, that sinners might have mercy in him, that sinners might not have the wrath of God poured out upon us. That's why in Christ we are justified. We are righteous before him. We have Christ's righteousness that has been imputed to us, and we have a righteousness that is not our own. God is just, and God is merciful and we see that mercy and justice come together in the cross of Christ. And then notice verse 11. He continues on with that object lesson. Verse 11 and shall I not pity? And that word pity is the is the, is the verbal form of loving kindness. Shall I not be gracious? Shall I not be kind to them? That great city, which are more than one hundred and twenty thousand people who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much live stock. What he's saying here is, who has the greater mercy? Who has greater loving kindness? Who is the compassionate God? Who is the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, even towards you, Jonah? <laughs> Even towards you, Israel, should you repent and turn to me, I will relent of the disaster that is about to come upon you. Otherwise, I must righteously and justly punish sin. And the reason he ends with the livestock, that is, livestock is more important than plants, right? And people are more important than livestock. There is a created order. And some things are more important than others. Jonah, why are you so grumpy about your plant when there's 120,000 people who have repented and there are livestock in the city? Are they have not more value than the plant? Where Where is your kindness? Where is your graciousness? And perhaps Jonah ends with this question to cause us to stop and think. Are is our people not of more value than plants? It's for us to be struck with our own unrighteous anger, where we would be more angry over a plant. Our, our livestock and people are they not more valuable than that plant? Now we don't have how Jonah reacts to that, but Gill suggests no answer coming but it being included is jonah's sort of forgiveness and jonah's redemption that is jonah is probably the one who wrote this book why would he include that why would he include that ending why would he include this type of thing it's to show perhaps that he did understand gill says no answer being returned it may be reasonably it may be reasonably supposed jonah was convinced of his sin and folly And to show his repentance for it, penned this narrative, which records his infirmities and weakness for the good of the church, the instruction of saints in succeeding ages. Jonah was disobedient. Jonah was angry and petty. Yet God was gracious to him as well, just as he was gracious to Nineveh. And that is the point of the entire book. It's all about our great God, not the great fish. It's all about the great God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's to show a God who is gracious, not just to Israel, but to Gentiles as well. And we see even with the Ninevites, even with the mariners, they foreshadow Gentiles coming in through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one like our God. There is no one like our Christ. There is no one who forgives like our God. There is no one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There is no one who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin like our God. That is the point of the book. And he ends this book that we might be struck by God's kindness towards sinners like us. Let us pray. Our great God, thank you for your graciousness towards sinners like us. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace that we have a righteousness that is not our own because of Christ and what he has done. Thank you, This is received by faith. This is because of your, uh, your promises, because of your decrees. And thank you that you're the God of this world and you shall do right. You are the one who shall show your justice and the one who shall show your mercy. And please forgive us for our anger. Please forgive us for our pettiness. May we rejoice when sinners are saved. May we rejoice when people receive good things and thank you even for our pettiness. You have forgiven us. So help us to be reminded of your goodness. Help us to be reminded of your kindness towards us, for there is no God like you, that you do forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. So help us to be struck with this tonight. Help us to go with this tomorrow. Help us to be reminded often of your amazing grace that saved wretches like us. And it is a sweet sound. May it continue to be sweet for your people as we walk this world. So be pleased to encourage us and uplift us in your mercy and grace. Be pleased to save sinners that they might find mercy and grace in you. And thank you that you are the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.